Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Let's turn to the scriptures. We're going to read Genesis chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. And, um, and, and this likely is the most important part of our service. This is, this is when we get to see unfiltered how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. A sermon is an explanation of God's revealed word. It's so important. But this moment, don't tune out. Tune in to what God has to say to you um, by his spirit. And here at Christ's Covenant, we believe that uh, because, of, because of the fact that these are inspired by the spirit, that they come to us with the same kind of power and authority as if Jesus himself was standing before you and proclaiming these words over you uh, this evening. Let's read Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. When Abraham, or Abram, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your Name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring After you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray now for for Jason as he comes to uh, proclaim truth to us and explain this to us, that we would be edified, that you give him the words that uh, you would have us here uh, today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Blake. Well, a person's parents, as Blake said, they're particularly important for who they become. Uh, it's it's really hard to know a person fully, or, or a lot of a lot of uh, you know coins drop in trying to get to know another person when you get to know their family. Have you ever had that moment where uh, you're, you're kind of getting to know someone, and then you get to know their dad, you get to know their mom, and you're like, ah, now I see, now I know where this person's coming from. And so it's important for the same reason that we look at Abraham. He was the father of the people of Israel. He was the father of God's people. As we look through the Old Testament, we see God demonstrating himself through this people. And ultimately, Abraham would become the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And, and it's important that we understand how God operated and what God was doing through Abraham in order to understand how God is operating now and what God desires to do through us. Now, as we read in the passage, Abraham, we, we call him this, but he didn't start off as Abraham. He started off as Abram, which means the father of many. But then, of course, God changed his name, as we read in the text, to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And, we, and there's a lot more to say about this, but of course, we, we read that, we understand that, because he would be the father of two nations, both the descendants of Isaac and, of course, the descendants of Israel. But if you were here with us a few weeks ago, we've been kind of tracing what God here is doing in his call of Abraham. He called Abraham to establish through Abraham a people, and through this people, God would manifest himself. God would make himself known. His character, his power, his goodness would be ultimately known through a people who were following God in faith. And God wasn't just making himself known to that people, but through that people, God wanted to make himself known to every nation, to every family on the earth. Of course, you hear this last week. We talked about Abraham's doubts and some of the fears that Abraham had. How could Abraham be sure that God's blessing was really upon him? And of course, what we read last week is that God made this covenant. God God. God came down and, and took on the onus of this great covenant that uh, in, in defining the relationship that he had with Abraham. And we said last week that even though God was the greater party in the covenant, even though God uh, was the one in the covenant, in, in traditionally covenants, the, the lesser party takes the onus of the covenant, the lesser party takes the penalty of the covenant. But God in Genesis 15 that we looked at last week was owning the covenant. He was, uh, he was taking onus of the covenant. He, he was basically putting the guarantee of this covenant upon himself. And we see that same kind of language in this passage. I don't know if you noticed as Blake was reading, all the action that God is going to do in his relationship with Abraham. There's seven I am or I will statements. I am making this covenant. I have made you the father of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an eternal possession. And then lastly, I will be their God. I am going to do this, Abraham. I am going to establish this covenant. I am going to make you fruitful. I am going to give you the land. I am going to be the God of your offspring. And so you ask yourself, okay, well, what does Abraham have to do? What is his side of the covenant? What is Abraham doing here? And you know what Abraham has to do? Abraham has to believe. Abraham has to respond to these declarations, to this call of God in faith. That's what it means to enter into a relationship with God. This is a pattern that God establishes here that, that still carries on to this day. How is Abraham going to come into a relationship covenant, into covenant relationship with God by faith? How is Abraham going to receive the promises of God by faith? How is God going to display himself through this people as they responded to God in faith? And the same is true for you and for me. You know what it means to be a, you know what it means to be a Christian? You know what it means to, to, to be a, a covenant part of God's family? It's to hear God's call and to respond to it in faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to hear God's call 
the call of God, as God has revealed himself, as God is showing himself in the gospel of his word, and to respond to it by faith. And I just want to say this, by virtue of you being here tonight, by virtue of you singing the songs that we just sang, by virtue of you hearing the scripture read as it was just read, God is calling to you. God is calling out to you. God is saying, I want to make a covenant with you. God is seeking you out. Now the question is, will we respond to him in faith? It's to hear God's call and respond to it in faith. You see, the thing about Christianity that makes it so interesting, it's so unique, is that Christianity is not just about having ritual or believing in events or going to places that have power. And it's also not just universal ideas. It, it's, it's neither of those and it's, and it's both of those. Um, in the ancient world, in more traditional cultures, the idea of event, the idea of place had great importance. More traditional religion, more ancient religion puts a lot of stock in a ritual or going to a place or going to a pilgrimage, experiencing something in some place, enacting something. Or maybe it's putting stock in some law code, doing some law or acting out some ritual. There's, there's, in, in religions like that and structures like that, there's great framework, but there's not a lot of life. There's not a lot of personality uh, to it. Now, in modern cultures, in more modern society, it's more just about believing universal things. So you ask a modern person, how do you know God? And you know what they'll say? Well, I try to live a good life. You know? How, how, how do you know that you're, you know God? Or how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? Well, I try to do good things. I try to live a good life. I try to love people. Well, you know, you ask the question, what does that mean? And, and that's a good question. What does that mean? <laughs> what on earth does that mean? It means nothing. It's a blob. There's no meaning uh, behind it. This is where modern people are. We want these universal truths, but we're not, really, we're not willing to give it any form or framework. The beautiful thing about Christianity is that we believe in universal truths. We believe in love as Christians. We believe in justice as Christians. We believe in mercy and forgiveness and all these things. We believe in all these things as Christians, but we believe that we have a God who has demonstrated these things for us. That they don't just operate in the clouds, but they've actually come in flesh and bone and lived themselves out among us. There is something that is love and it has been demonstrated. That's the amazing thing about Christianity is that we actually believe in a God that came and lived out truth among us. Flesh and bone, there was structure, there was events. Now, we don't over-ritualize those events, right? It's, good, it's a good thing to do to take a trip to the Holy Land. It's a good thing to do to go to Israel. But you don't have to go to Israel and like walk around the Western Wall or something to become a Christian, right? The, the power, it's, it's, good, it's a good thing to do those things, but we don't believe in some religious ritual. No, we, how are we saved? We're, we're saved by faith. And you can have faith anywhere, at any time. Any person can respond to what God has done in faith. You see what, see what God has done in Christianity? He, he's taken these universal things that we all desire, justice, truth, mercy, and he's demonstrated them to us. He's shown them to us. There is such a thing as love. And you know what it looks like? It looks like that, that war bow that I was talking about earlier, pointing itself back at God. God taking on the punishment of our sin. God 
living in Christ sacrificially before us and taking on our sin and demonstrating. You know what justice is? It's, it's demonstrated. It's God pouring out justice against sin. You know what mercy is? It's us not receiving the justice that we are due. That's what it means to be a Christian. God has put to action. God has demonstrated all of these things. And, and what we have to do in order to enter into this covenant is to respond to God by faith, to believe and this is what Abraham did. This is why we read that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But when Abraham believed, God said, I, I want you to do something. I, I want you to take on something. I, I want to give you something. And we talked about this a little bit last week, too. I want to give you a sign. I want to give you a symbol of this covenant that I have made with you. I want you to be circumcised. Now, circumcision wasn't totally uncommon when God gave this command to Abraham. Uh, in fact, other cultures we read about, uh, men as they would enter adolescence would be circumcised. It was, a form of, it was a sexual purity ritual. But it was totally uncommon. It had never been done before, so far as we know in the ancient world, among infants, among, among boys, as we see here, only eight days old. This was incredibly um, distinctive for the people uh, of Israel. And so I want to spend a little time tonight with you thinking about this. I know that you, uh, on your Father's Day, were thinking, you know, I, I bet you he's going to preach on circumcision. Um, but, you know, it's actually kind of appropriate, right? Uh, um, anyway, so as we think about this text, I want to I ask two questions of it. First of all, what was circumcision then? And then secondly, what is circumcision now? So what was circumcision then? Why was it important for Hebrew people to be uh, circumcised, for Hebrew males to be circumcised on the eighth day of their life? And then what is circumcision now? Again, as I mentioned last week, if you were here, signs are important for understanding story. We use signs and symbols to tell story, to bring you into story, even the fact that it is Father's Day. It's less of a sign or a symbol and more of a ceremony, but a ceremony is kind of, it's a type of sign, right? And it's a sign that we use, that we have every single year to remind us of a story. And what is that story? It's your own story. It's the story of your upbringing. It's the story of your family. It's the story of your dad, right? So we have this ceremony that is supposed to, it's not just supposed to be some arbitrary Father's Day. No, you're, you're supposed to, there's a way to celebrate Father's Day. You're supposed to think about your own father on Father's Day. You're supposed to reflect on what your father taught you on Father's Day. I'm sure many of you today, you've been thinking about, okay, what is it that, what is it that it's important to my family? What is it that means to be a part of this household that I have come from? So a, a ceremony, if you will, it's a type of sign that draws you into the story. And oftentimes, actually, signs and ceremonies go together. This is actually certainly the case with circumcision. On the eighth day, this is still a very big part of Hebrew culture. It's a celebration. Circumcision is a, it's a celebration. It, it's a sign, circumcision, that's actually become a whole ceremonial ritual that the, the people of Israel, Hebrew people, Jewish people even today, would celebrate the circumcision of a boy. And this was a ceremony that God was, was giving to the people for, for two main reasons here. It, it, it was to cause them to kind of look in two different directions. First of all, God gave Abraham 
the sign of circumcision to lead the people of Israel to look back, to think about the promise. When, when, when for years and years and years, generation upon generation upon generation, the people of Israel were, were, were taking part in this sign. They were circumcising these babies that were eight days old. They were supposed to look back, and they were supposed to remember the promise. They were supposed to remember what God told Abraham. And what did God tell Abraham? I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to make you a great nation. I am going to do something so great through you, Abraham. And, and as they celebrated that, as these boys kept coming in, as sons and daughters kept coming to be a part of the covenant people, offspring of Abraham, what was it to do? It was, it was to remind the people that God actually was fulfilling his promise. He wasn't just going to give Abraham one son, he was going to give him countless sons. He was going to give him sons as numerous as the stars were in the sky. So the first reason that God gave this is for people to look back, to remember back to the promise that God was creating a people through the offspring of Abraham and through this people, every, every family on the earth would be blessed. But the sign also reminded the Hebrew people of something else. It, it, it caused them to look forward. It caused them to thinking, think about something that was to come. They were to look back on what God had said to Abraham, and they are also to look forward in something that was coming. Again, the sign is not arbitrary. When I was in college, uh, a lot of guys in my fraternity uh, got the fraternity letters tattooed on their ankle. You know, we, we would call it a fratu. Um, and so some of y'all might have a frat too. That's great. But, you know, I never got one. I'm glad I didn't now, um, as important as my frat life was to me back then. Um, you know, I, I remember seeing guys, you know, the one, the one tattoo that I think would be pretty cool to have for me, again, tattoos are awesome, but the one tattoo for me that I think would be pretty cool to have is like U.S. Marine Corps. You ever see like a guy that has USMC on his arm? Now, you can't just get that, right? I mean, you, you it's, it's better to have been a Marine uh, beforehand. But you see that guy, you're like, that guy could probably kill me right now. So why didn't God just say, you know what we're going to do with the Hebrew people? You know what we're going to do to mark them? We're just going to get them a tattoo that says, I'm a Hebrew boy. Or even better, I'm a son of Abraham. That would be kind of a cool tattoo to have. Why was it this particular ritual, this circumcision, well, you know why? The hope of the Hebrew people was the offspring. This is, this is a theme that we see all throughout Scripture. When Adam was leaving the garden, after he and Eve had sinned, after fellowship with God had been broken and all seemed lost, the one shred of hope that Adam could hold on to was that God had said to Eve, one day your wife, Eve, will have a child and that child will crush the head of the serpent. There was hope in the offspring. David later God said to him, I am going to establish for you and for your offspring an eternal throne, that your son is going to sit on the throne of God forever and ever. There was hope in the offspring. And what is the hope of Abraham here? You are going to have a child. You are going to be the father of a great nation 
And throughout all the generations, I am going to give you a sign that's going to be carried on from generation to generation to generation that's going to remind you of the ultimate hope that you have in this offspring that will come, that through the offspring, you will be a blessing to every family on earth. Through the offspring, there will be a king on the throne of Israel forever. That through the offspring, the the head of the serpent would ultimately be crushed. There's no accident that the sign that God gave to the Hebrew people had something to do with this reproductive organ. And every time the Hebrew people gathered together to celebrate circumcision, they remembered God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham and our numbers are growing. We are becoming as numerous as the stars in the sky. And they also remembered, they remembered forward, one day an offspring will come. One day a Messiah will come. A Messiah, just like the prophets also in Scripture talked about. The child that will be born. And through this child, all will be made right and all will be made well. Well, now, of course, we believe that that offspring has come, right? We believe that as Christians. We believe that the ultimate offspring of Abraham was born in Bethlehem. We celebrate this at Christmas time. His name is Jesus. He was the Messiah that was promised. He was the Messiah that was the fulfillment of all of the law of God. He was the fulfillment of all of the prophets of God. And we believe that this Messiah actually fulfilled righteousness. We believe that when Jesus came on his eight-day-old birthday, he was circumcised, fulfilling God's law. And he didn't just fulfill that law. He fulfilled every single law, every single demand of God. It's all wrapped up in him. And Abraham and all of the people of Israel and you and me are to look to this offspring, And this is where salvation comes from. This is actually the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. How was Abraham saved? How was Abraham found righteous? What did it mean when it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Is this just Abraham believing God? Or is this Abraham believing God about something actually specific? And I believe God is giving Abraham all of these things to show him, no, your faith, Abraham, is not in just God. Your faith is in something I am going to do. Actually, in particular, Abraham's faith was in this coming offspring. His hope was in this coming offspring. Abraham's hope of salvation, my hope of salvation, your hope of salvation was in Jesus. How was Abraham found righteous? It wasn't his own righteousness. If there's anything that comes out of, this, of these passages, Genesis 12 through 22, it's that Abraham did not always follow the law of God. Now, what, what saved Abraham? His faith. And not just faith, not just faith in God. No, faith in the saving work of his offspring, faith in the offspring that would come and fulfill the promises and the righteousness of God. And now Jesus has come. He has fulfilled the law. We aren't waiting on an offspring. We can look to the same Jesus, but even more clearly than Abraham, because more has been revealed to us for our hope, for our salvation. And that brings me to the second question then, What is circumcision now, right? How should we think about this passage now? Well, this is actually a big theme in the New Testament. If you've read through um, the New Testament, 
Circumcision was so important in Hebrew life. It was such a distinction. It was such a defining part of them that as these Jewish people started to become Christians, they started following, started following Jesus, it was difficult for them to give up on circumcision. It was difficult for them to give up on this ritualistic practice. It was such a part of their identity. And so there was all these people going around and saying, well, you know, we, we, we believe Jesus is someone, but don't give up on circumcision. You must be circumcised. You must follow what God said about circumcision. And if you read the New Testament, this is a big sticking point with Paul. Paul, who was himself circumcised, of course, rightly saw circumcision as a, an act that had, it, that's usefulness had expired. It was meant to point to the offspring, the offspring that had come. And now there was no more need among believers for circumcision. And, and of course, Paul gets greatly frustrated about this. Um, this is a big theme of the book of Galatians, and what Paul kind of says over and over throughout Galatians, Lo, is, look, it's not the law, it's not some act, it's not a sacrament that saves, it's Christ who saves. It's Christ who saves. Don't add to this, don't subtract from this, look to Jesus. At one point, Paul gets so frustrated in Galatians 5, he says, I wish those people would just emasculate themselves. Now, I don't think that today people are going around and saying, look, if you aren't circumcised, you can't be a Christian. That, of course, is a false gospel. But I do want to give this warning against a similar false gospel that I do see today. And I, I do want to give this warning against Christian sacramentalism. I grew up in a church um, that said, if you want to become a Christian, you have to pray this prayer, you have to walk the aisle, and you have to be baptized. You have to do those three things. You have to do them very precisely, okay? And so I grew up believing that. Okay, if I want to become a Christian, I've got to pray this prayer. The preacher prayed the same prayer every week. I've got to walk an aisle, and there was an aisle that, you know, there was a couple aisles, but there was one that you walked when you got saved, right? And you got to get baptized. You got to do those three things. And that's a great example of Christian sacramentalism. Now, it's not that those things aren't meaningful, right? They're all full of meaning. Prayer, obviously, a, a sinner's prayer is a meaningful thing. Uh, a walking of an aisle is, uh, is oftentimes a sign of surrender. It's a sign of repentance. And, of course, baptism is, is a sign that's given by God. It's a sacrament that reminds us of this. We're going to talk about it more in particular here in a little bit. But I just, I just want to give a warning. If your faith today, some of you grew up, Methodist or Presbyterian and went through a first communion and it was very orderly and systematic and, and it was told, hey, this, this is going to give you confidence that you are a Christian. Or some of you may have grown up uh, in a Catholic background. Pretty much all of my family is Catholic and there's obviously a lot of sacramental, uh, a lot of sacramental systems there that, that, that it's easy to, in those systems, put confidence in the thing and not in the gospel. And I just want to say, if your confidence tonight that you're a Christian or a believer is in praying a prayer or getting baptized, then you're not a Christian. That's sacramentalism. If your confidence is in your good behavior, that's moralism. If your confidence is in your freedom and in living uh, a good life on your own, then you're a humanist. It's only when your confidence is in Christ and in Christ alone that you become a Christian. 
So I want to be very clear. These signs that God has given us, they are graces. They call us into the story, but they have never been able to save. They weren't salvific for Abraham. Abraham wasn't saved because he got circumcised. He, wasn't, he was saved because he had faith in God, and particularly had faith in God's salvation. But these signs do point us to the one who can save. They are useful. Circumcision was a sign of coming salvation for Abraham in the same way that Jesus gave baptism as a sign of our salvation for us. It's interesting, when God called Abraham, here's what he said to Abraham. He said, look, go from your country, be circumcised, kind of through the course of these chapters, and circumcise every generation, teach those generations to know me, and if you do this, every family on earth will be blessed. What does that kind of sound like? Kind of sounds like the Great Commission, right? Jesus, in the same way, said to us, look, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, make disciples, teach them, baptize, go to every nation so that every family on the earth can be blessed. And the reason that Jesus gave us this command to be baptized is the same reason that God gave Abraham the command to be circumcised. So I want to think about this just for a second. What does circumcision mean today? How do we apply this today? And of course, we apply it through Christian baptism. First of all, so what is baptism? Let's think about that. First of all, baptism is a look back. Um, Just as circumcision was to look back at the promise of God, baptism is a look back. You know, a sacrament is a physical sign of a spiritual reality that has happened. It's a physical, if you will, it's acting out something spiritual that has happened to you. It's a physical sign of something spiritual that has happened. So when you are baptized, you are doing something physically. You're acting out something that happened spiritually. In the time of Abraham, how did you know you entered into, how did, Abra, how did someone know, how did one of Abraham's descendants know that they were a descendant of Abraham? How did you become a descendant of Abraham? Well, you were born a descendant of Abraham, right? You got born. Birth was the means by which you entered into the covenant. Well, how do you enter into the new covenant? How do you now become a son or daughter of God in Christ? Well, it's by being born again. It's, it's by experiencing the new birth. It's by, by experiencing regeneration in Christ. And that's, of course, why we baptize people after they have made a profession of faith, after they've been reborn or spiritually been reborn. And, of course, baptism is a drama that represents something. Uh, it's a symbol that represents something incredibly powerful. Many of you have heard me talk about this before, but, but water, the mode of baptism is important. Because water throughout the Bible is a symbol of judgment, right? Throughout the scripture, water symbolizes the wrath of God. Think about the story of Noah and the flood. We just talked about it. It's, you know, it's a story that we have kind of softened, right? We use that story to teach our kids about the animals a lot of times. We say, oh, let's use this uh, thing. We'll teach kids what giraffes are. But really, it's an incredibly powerful story about God's wrath. 
everyone dies in that story except for one family. And God demonstrates his wrath. The sign of his wrath is, of course, water. Think about the story of the people of Israel crossing the sea on dry ground. The Egyptians follow after them. And what happens? God pours out his wrath on the Egyptians for their sin against Israel with the sign of water. Think about Jonah, the story of Jonah, who was running from God, living in disobedience for God. And what does God do? God sends judgment to Jonah with a sea, a sea that Jonah is eventually thrown into. So over and over and over through Scripture, we see this sign that that water is synonymous with the judgment of God. You know, I mentioned we went on this rafting trip this weekend, and uh, water is amazing. I, I, I love rivers. I love to raft. But water is also terrifying, if you think about it. You know, a cubic foot of water weighs 62 pounds. And, you know, yesterday the flow of the Chattooga, it wasn't super high, but it was flowing at like 550 cubic feet per second. You know what that means? That means that every second, 34,000 pounds of water was flowing through this river and sometimes through very narrow chutes. And, you know, it's terrifying to be out there. You just think, man, I am, if I get stuck in this, I can't fight it. I am helpless. I am going to get crushed by this. You see, the water of baptism, the mode of baptism, again, it's not arbitrary. It's, it's a statement of repentance. When you go under the water of baptism, you are saying, this is what I deserve. I am no better than the people in the time of Noah. I am no better than the Egyptians who disdained and scorned God. I'm no better than Jonah who's run away from God. You go under that as a, as a symbol of your confession, as a symbol of your repentance. I have run from God and now I am getting my due. And you know, when you go under the water of baptism, it's an incredibly vulnerable position. Just think about it. I mean, what is a more vulnerable position than to be underwater, basically on your back? It's incredibly vulnerable. It's incredibly weak. It's, it's, in, it's, incre- it's, it's, it's almost a bit embarrassing. You know, I, I remember I was doing a baptism one time of, of someone who came and wanted to be baptized. It was an older woman, and she kind of had like, you know, the, the big hair thing going on, a lot of hairspray. And uh, she said, you know, is there any way that we could do a private baptism? I, uh, I think it would be embarrassing uh, to, be, to get my hair wet in public like that. And I said to her, look, you know, with all due respect, ma'am, baptism is kind of supposed to be a little embarrassing. You know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not that you're wet in front of people that makes it embarrassing. You're, you're, you're saying, I need a savior. I am helpless. My righteousness, my good work, even my good looks, all it's going to do for me is bury me when I stand face to face with God. I am in desperate need of a savior. 
But of course, what happens in baptism? Well, that's exactly what happens. Salvation happens. You're pulled up out of the water. You're, you're pulled up as a sign that new life has come. That It's a physical sign that something spiritual has happened, that Jesus has rescued you from spiritual death, that Jesus has called you to life. And he's not just called you to some life, he's called you to eternal life in his kingdom. This is what this is, this is what this is acting out. This is what it's displaying. It's a physical sign that represents something spiritually that is so beautiful. But you see, it's more than that. It, it's a look back at something spiritually that's happened. But, but baptism, as I said last week, it's also a signpost. It's also looking forward. We need to see baptisms. Because they, they remind us of something spiritually that has happened in this person's life. They're a proclamation of a person of something spiritually that has happened in their life. But it's also a reminder to us of something physically that will happen if you are in Christ. In a few minutes here, we're actually going to get to see this demonstrated. Carrie Stevens is going to come and be baptized. And when I baptize her, I, I'm going to put her under the water, as we just talked about, and we're going to pull her up out of the water. And it'll happen just like that. You know, it's instantaneous. We don't hold, if you get baptized, we don't hold you under, right? You, you come right back up. And, and actually, that is symbolic. That is symbolic. You see, what Carrie is going to say to us today is there is something that's happened to me. I, I you know, as Paul says, <laughs> it was by the law that I died. Carrie is going to say to us, you know what, I consider the righteousness and the holiness and the law of God, and you know what, I died. I, 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 am, I cannot stand before God. There's no way I'm going to stand before him and be declared righteous. I desperately need a Savior, and she has found that Savior in Jesus. She is responding to the call of God in faith. She is going to demonstrate to us something that has happened to her spiritually, but she's reminding us of something that will happen to her physically, you see, one day Carrie will die many, many years from now. And one day I'll die. And one day you'll die. And if you're in Christ, the, the, the signpost that this is, the reminder to you and to me that this is, is that as instantaneous as, as Carrie is under the water here in just a little bit. She's just going to go under the water. She's going to come right back up as quickly as that happens. When you die, as quickly as that happens, you'll be alive again. And you'll be in the presence of God. And you won't just be alive, you'll be fully alive. You'll be alive like you've never been alive. And you'll be free from sin. And you'll be free from guilt. And you'll be well, and you'll be whole, and you'll know God, and you'll know his truth, and you'll know his beauty, and all these things that your heart longs for and desires, you will know and experience. And it'll happen just like that, just as quick as she goes under the water, as quick as she goes, that's a, it's a picture to you of as quickly as these things will happen as soon as you breathe your last and cross over from this life into the next. You see, we need signs. Abraham needed circumcision. They needed to be circumcising those boys on the eighth day to remind them that God was fulfilling his promise and that one day a Messiah was going to come and now that Messiah has come. And he has promised us victory over death. He has promised us victory over sin. He's promised us victory over judgment. He's promised us victory over all things. And this is a signpost. 
It's a signpost of victory. It's a signpost of salvation. It's designed for you, the person getting baptized, to solidify and strengthen your faith, but it's also designed for all of us who watch. We need this. You need to see people getting baptized. You need to see this. You need to see this reminder, this sign, this symbol that God's promises are sure, that God's promises are good, that he is actively at work saving people spiritually and he will one day save us physically. He will call us to himself and we will be with him just as the resurrected Christ is alive now, so too in him we will be alive. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.